Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine the redheaded stepchildren of Hollywood. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are reviewing 2000's The Fantastics. Try to remember the kind of September when grass was green and grain was yellow. It was filmed in 2000? So, apparently it was filmed in 1995, but it took five years for them to get around to publishing it. Like, producing it. Why? I I don't know. This was just, like, a random fact on the IMDb of, like, (laughs) filmed in 1995, it took producer blah 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 five years to... I think it was, like, they had to get permission from the writer of the original musical to, like give it to a studio like he agreed for it to be filmed and then at the end of the day they were like oh we want mgm to do this and that took five years to make happen i guess that's really bizarre but it makes sense as to why it feels a little more dated than 2000 yes absolutely because while i'm well aware that 2000 was 20 years ago like every 90s baby i my brain does blip (laughs) but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel 2000-y. It feels 90-y. So that makes more sense. Yeah. No, and it, it absolutely feels more 90s. And I feel like if this had been actually made in 2000, there would have been, like, attempts at more CGI or or something like that. Like, there's a difference between 90s filmmaking and 2000s filmmaking. And I actually appreciate the vibe of this coming from the 90s. Yeah, because it feels very older brought it doesn't feel wicked it doesn't feel any of those musicals it feels more into the woodsy than anything else yeah absolutely so it's that same kind of that feeling yeah but before we go any farther what is the fantastics about um the fantastics is the story of louisa and matt a couple of teenagers basically kind of shanghaied into romance by their dads um, and tricked into wanting to romantically be together um, through a fake feud between their fathers. Yeah. And then the feud ends with the help of El Gallo and a local circus troupe who fakes a feud, or who fakes, excuse me, who fakes an abduction. And we'll talk about the wording around that in a bit. <laughs> sure. And Matt and Louisa are allowed to fall in love. And then they realize, oh, romance is hard. Yeah. And, and like, I was trying to explain this to somebody and I was like, it's a love story. Sure. How do I get more into that? <laughs> well, like, it's a love story. It's a love story in all the ways where you're, where it's based on a play that's based on Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of tell that in the sense that there, at the very beginning, there's this really elemental romance where it kind of becomes clear maybe you wouldn't have fallen for each other if there hadn't have been this feud in the first place. And a lot of their romance is very basic. Yeah, and so to, to get into that a little bit, a lot of the first half of the movie is like the core conflict is you have the men Mortimer and Bellamy not Mortimer you have the men 
Henry and Bellamy. What's the second dad's name? Oh, I just remember Bellamy. Yeah, because Bellamy's Joel Grey and he's delightful. <laughs> Huckabee. Huckabee. Huckleby. 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 All right. So you've got the parents, Bellamy and Huckleby. And like the whole thing is they are old friends, best friends. And they've just kind of asserted this notion that like if they made it clear that they were friends, their children would not fall in love. Correct. So they have this whole number, the minute that we say no, where the two dads explain that the premise of their wall between them, very Pyramus and Thisbe style, is to make their two children fall in love together because they want to have basically a joint family kind of situation. They're such good bros. And also it goes completely unmentioned that neither child's mother is still in the picture. Correct. Um, but they are such good friends that they're just like, oh my God, I can't wait to be in-laws with you. Wait, shit, we got to make sure we're in-laws. Because despite the fact that we live in Kansas, Montana, rural Oklahoma. North Dakota. Despite the fact that we are the only two houses in the county. Our kids will not fall in love with each other unless we pretend to hate each other. Because there's got to be that fire and that romance and that that conflict. Which they're kind of right about. They're kind of right about. Um, so the first... The reason I liken it to the Into the Woods is because the first act is all about the setup of perfection. Mm -hmm. And then the second act is all about that perfection falling apart. Sure. And what do you do with after the fairy tale? So I really enjoy that conflict between the two parts because it's very clear in the first act that Louisa and Matt are not going to do well together. Like their harmonies are quite literally discordant. Mm. I don't know if you noticed that, but like they don't match together. Mm -hmm. And when Matt sings in the number You Are Love, he talks a lot about how you are all these things. And Louisa says, yes, I am all those things. So he's so it's Matt saying, you are love, you are love, you're my mystery. And Louisa says, I'm your mystery. And then in You Are Love Reprised, in the second half, they're actually singing to each other and their harmony is cleaner. I love that. <laughs> That's a really fascinating and wonderful like uh, detail for the songwriters to put in. Mm-hmm. So before anything, I want the, before we get more into actual plot stuff... I had some kind of baseline questions for you. Okay. Um, this reminded me, or, or rather, this made me think of Mirror Mask. Interesting. Because this is the second movie that, like, just through friendship and knowing you, you have made it clear to me is incredibly important to you. Mm -hmm. And a core, like, setting of it is a carnival and circus culture. And I just caught a parallel there. <laughs> Oh no, I have made myself predictable. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just, it was just a really, uh, it, it was something I instantly kind of keyed on. <laughs> I say more than most adults when I'm in professional conflict or personal conflict, it's fine, I'll just run away and join the circus. Mm -hmm. And there have been multiple times where I've looked up what it takes to be in the circus, and I promise you, I am not that cool. But I know someone in my grown-up <laughs> life who has lived circus culture, and she's a fascinating person to talk to because she's like, you just have to be okay with your life not having linearity. And in reality, 
I like rules and structure far too much to ever pursue circus life, but I've written about circuses endlessly. Circus culture fascinates me. Any movie with a circus in it, any book with a circus in it. If you look through my bookshelves, you'll find at least five books where the setting is a circus. Hmm. Circuses are fascinating to me. Well, this tracks in line with that then. <laughs> I never knew that about you. Yeah, I think it's something with the whole like idea of these people serve as entertainment, but have no quote-unquote true setting sure so the thing that i love about el gallo is that he he is morally ambiguous most of the movie and it's not until the very end that you see that what he has done with louisa he has done with in the past of several others yeah yeah and i was about to say like the thing that i always think about with circus culture specifically is the stark duality because anytime you get into a circus story, you get into the fact of like, there is what we present to other people. And then there is how we live in our day to day when we're not on stage. And they're often so different. You, know, you get bits and pieces of it here. And I think the best part of that is comparing El Gallo when we first see him and he's trying to charm the dads into giving all the money he can squeeze out of them versus when we see him the next morning and it's morning and there's no show coming up and he's just sitting there like shaving while the rest of his crew just kind of hangs out and picks hay and the the difference between lights and splendor and wonder versus yes and then we turn that off and we're just regular people yeah is always really fascinating to me yeah el gallo's morality is fascinating the people are cheering. I'm standing center leering. I wear a cape and snare, a snare that's really quite endearing. Because yeah. from the moment he showed up, I was sitting here being like, oh, this person is instantly charismatic and just wonderful to watch and a real, like, treat just to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But so often throughout the movie, I was confused as to where is his morality what is his motivation i kept expecting him to like pull an even bigger villain moment than he ever actually did sure having never seen this and like the idea of like he's he's conning these two men out of every cent he can and the abduction like Mm -hmm. At the very end of it, after he jumps into the swimming pool, there's a moment where he like kind of gets up and he seems kind of flustered. And I was like, is he like, did he not mean to fall in the pool? And is he going to be shitty and get revenge and like mm. actually abduct Louisa now? Mm. And then getting into act two, at the same time, you're sitting there being like, okay, no, this dude is just kind of like, this is what he does. But yeah. then he finally does pull a more like villainous action but it's hard to even call that villainous he okay so the show deals really deeply in metaphor mm. so the whole the controversy with the show is that in its original writing it wasn't called an abduction it was called a rape and they even make a point of that in the movie correct in the original musical it was a lot more and so I think it was in the 60s they changed the wording because they were like, oh, this isn't, this is not going to go over well. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I think they say that once, but there's a lot of metaphor in the song Shall We Dance? Oh, yeah. Where there's lots of dancing and dancing. We can't stop. There's dancing to be done. Yeah. It's never shown. There is never anything implied that he actually takes it a step further with Louisa. But he is absolutely willing to break Louisa's heart and steal her mother's necklace. Yeah. And and like you said, by the end, by the finale, the final thing you see is El Gallo driving away. Mm-hmm. And he has a whole dashboard of necklaces, which you know to me conveys pretty clearly he's done this before. He's going to do this again. And in a way that that almost humanizes him so much in just the sense of like this is this is what the guy does yeah he goes around the country and his main thing is the circus job but if a somewhat naive girl wants to throw her heart at him he's not going to get in the way of that and what he'll probably do is teach her a hard lesson about life because I'm sure he would argue you need to learn some hard lessons. I think that's where I find grace for him. Because if it weren't for the moment where you see all of the trinkets hanging off of his mirror, and if it weren't for the moment where he grabs Louisa and says, I'm trying to give you a warning, mm. and Louisa passes right by it, yeah, um, El Gaia would look completely like a breeder. Or not a breeder, excuse me, a groomer. Because there's a lot of really, like, really creepy implication. He's much, much older than her. He basically takes away her safety. And then he's like, cool, yeah, go go home and pack, steal some money while you're at it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and that's the most telling thing of him being like, I'm going to be as utterly transparent as I can to you. I am not a good person. But then... It, it, I just thought of this now leaving her behind is so much more the kinder thing to do. You know what it is? You know what it is? You know what it is? What? It's like from dusk to dawn <laughs> to figure out the order Yeah. with um, George Clooney's character being like, no, I am not taking you with me. You're not going to fit in there. And this isn't a thing. I'm not feeling this. Or even if I am, I'm going to do the nice thing and be like, no, honey, go home. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Ta-da! I did it. I, that's a wonderful tie-in and connection. <laughs> the other thing about Algayo that I I personally got massive Jareth the Goblin King vibes. <laughs> well, he's got a cape. I wonder how much of it is the cape and the long hair and the like tight swashbuckling pants. Well, and he's got crystal balls. And he's got crystal balls that he, like, floats around and says are magic. And he's honestly very dashing when he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Like, in a in a larger budget production, that's probably David Bowie. The timeline fits. They just wanted to get David Bowie. And David Bowie's like, actually, I'm doing this other film at the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are there any puppets? No. Okay, well, how droll. (laughs) How boring. I'll do something else more camp. Thank you. But, like, that was the thing I walked away from it being like, El Gallo is a rock star Mm -hmm. from an era gone by. 
Yeah. Because this this takes place in like that 20s. Can- I mean, there's cars, but they're like Studebagas. Yeah, it's not. There's a silent film scene. There's home baking that in it, it's just that very like pre Great Depression or right after Great Depression vibe. Yeah. The fact that a circus coming to town is the noteworthy. thing. The shit. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god, we have to sneak out and make out in the circus tents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads us kind of back into Matt and Louisa, and we can talk about Matt and Louisa, and we can also talk about um, Bellamy and Huckleby. And how none of them are good people. And how none of them are good people. (laughs) We were talking about this the other day, and I asked you, like, okay, so who do you think is the only good person in this movie? Because in my mind, it's Mortimer the Mute. Mortimer the Mute Carney. Exactly. (laughs) And, And I will say, and this is the answer I gave you, out of our protagonists, Matt is shitty, but Matt does nothing wrong until Louisa is shitty to him first. That's, I guess, true. He's just flat and boring. Yeah, but he makes no, like, bones about that. And he he doesn't try to hide that at all. He's a pig farmer next door. And he really likes this girl. And she really seems to like him, too. And then he he does, like, as far as he knows... He gets his hero moment, which is organic in what he is presenting, even if he doesn't realize that everybody is letting him win sword fights and stuff. But, like, his own heroism is genuine within himself. He gets the girl. He he ends the feud between his parents by his estimation. And then, like, he gets to do this sweet, charming, chaste 20s thing of, oh, we're going to sit on the porch and watch the sunset, or watch the sunrise. And they actually do. And they do, and it's terrible. This plum is too ripe. Sorry. But, like, he has no reason to think he's doing anything wrong. He, he you know, the, the thing that really highlights that is the salt water bit. Mm-hmm. Dude washes his mouth with salt water, which is a very, like, bumpkin-y thing to do. But he's kind of a bumpkin. He's, he's trying to be nice and not have a, like, dirty, smelly mouth in case he kisses her. I know. He tries. He tries, and Louisa very much, like, Instantly makes it like, oh, no, no, no. See, I don't want trying. I want doing. And specifically, like, you need to be the unrealistic expectation of what a hero man is in my brain 100% of the time, context aside. Yeah. Louisa is me at 17. So I, I'm i hearing you say all this, and I'm, like, cringing deep inside. <laughs> well, I... Louisa is a child. The worst. (laughs) Louisa is the one who read to me as toxic first. Oh, absolutely. But that's ignoring the fact that if I'm counting who's toxic first, it's absolutely their dads. Yeah. So there's a, there's the fact that they set their children up Mm -hmm. and that they ignore consent and they ignore what the kids want and they ignore talking to them like they're adults and all of that terrible but what bothered me the most is that during 
the minute that we say no, uh-huh. there is a shot of Bellamy and Huckleby just casually in Louisa's room looking through her stuff. Sure. And I'm like, oh, this is like, this is the shining example of how bad you are at considering your children's personhood. Yeah. Like, they're just looking through her stuff. Um, the one who's not even her dad picks up, like, perfume of hers or something and sprays it in his face. Well, and then makes the joke of, like, um, has, a, has a play on words about there being a climax later that night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they play it off as a comedic bit where then Bellamy is like, hey, that's my daughter. And he was like, I was speaking theatrically. Yeah. Okay. Which also, also 17-year-old me, first time watching this, did not catch. <laughs> sure. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, how else would you mean it? Gee, I wonder. Oh. That's why I was Louisa. Did you ever walk down your lane singing about the things that you wanted in life and... Singing? No. (laughs) Thinking about, yes. (laughs) Sure. Of course. (laughs) So, yeah, like, I, I would argue Matt is the best, but he... He becomes so reactively defensive. He becomes so shitty. He he belays such a, a lack of self-confidence in himself the minute that things go wrong. He's just like, well, yeah, I mean, why the hell would you like a pig farmer? I'm going to go strike it rich. I'm going to go to where all the money and the beautiful women are. Fuck you, Louisa. Yeah. I'm going to go get tortured by carnies. That is the weirdest part of the movie. Oh, it's my favorite part of the movie. (laughs) Because that's when, like, shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. And that's the number where he's sneaking out and he's singing I Can See It. And El Gallo is singing something about the long, dark road. And how their melodies blend perfectly, but what they're saying are two totally different things. Mm-hmm. Where Matt is looking out to his future and El Gallo is saying, look, it's really hard out there. I don't think you understand. Not only am I going to teach your little girlfriend a lesson about how easily she can get brokenhearted and hurt. I'm going to teach you a lesson about how no one's going to be nice to you. Yeah. There. Have you ever read The Rainmaker? Um, it sounds familiar, but I don't think so. I, I saw it as a play, it, as a one act. And it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of like the same time period. It's random Midwest Kansas. And it's about this woman who, you know, wants, is basically Louisa. Mm-hmm. And meets this guy who proclaims that he is a total miracle worker and can, like, create rain when there's this giant drought and he he basically reads very much as like El Gallo if El Gallo bought into his own shit. Oh, uh huh. And and they do kind of a lot of the same like we're gonna teach you a lesson about the world and about reality. Only the whole time the rainmaker is like, yes, come with me, change your name to Evangeline and be a princess, and we will just go through life in a mad fantasy world together as i make miracles which is i think really some kind of slight con but the whole time he's like yes come with me i'm gonna take you away from this it's gonna be great and the woman in the play realizes oh you're like unstable and like not actually very safe and you're promising me all these wonderful nice things but like 
you can't answer any practical questions about how are we going to live comfortably and safely and anything like that. Mm -hmm. El Gallo is this same character, only he absolutely doesn't buy into, like, the mystique no. of it all. No, in fact, his ending monologue with Louisa about how everything is smoke and mirrors and she needs to be careful mm. is one of the defining moments because Louisa is basically saying like, look, I want you to take me away. And I think this is the moment where we see that El Gallo is giving Louisa everything she wants, but it's monkey pod. Yeah. Because she says, I just know you'll make everything better. And he does where she and Matt are finally okay. And they actually have real life realizations about, Oh, this is what our lives look like. And the parents are happy to see them because maybe it's been months, maybe it's been years, no one knows. Time is really weird in this musical. Yeah, you were even trying kind of trying to tell me, like, in the beginning numbers, they have all these references to September. The final number is all about December. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the metaphor of that. But also, like, you could take it as read that this takes place over a quarter yeah. This is a couple of months. Well, because in the beginning, she's walking through sunflowers and eating a plum that's too ripe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stone fruit season is tail end of August, beginning of September. And then at the end of the movie, when they're walking back, it's snowing. Right. And um, and the harvest, like, there, you get all these shots of Joel Grey, like, bundling up the hay. Yeah. So time time plays very strangely in this. Uh-huh. Cuz also you know for a fact the first act is all like a single 24-hour period. Yeah, it's real short. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. who knows how long they're in the circus's bellows where Matt is getting like lightly psychologically tortured i wouldn't say lightly because this dude so leaning us back into the the drug scene this dude has no idea what's going on he he takes a beverage offered to him by a carney which you should never do kids you should never do best case scenario it is the harshest whiskey you're ever gonna have in your life in this case it's some sort of psychotropic that like makes him not remember anything that's about to happen to him. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that he like takes a drink of something. And then the next thing he knows is like, just getting like hit and pushed around and and tied up and he's calling for help and no one helps him. And he's maybe watching his girlfriend get molested. There's a lot of metaphor here. There's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of like theater acid trippiness. We're going to talk about this, but we're going to, be really thinking about something else the whole bit about wearing masquerade masks Mm -hmm. and it's like oh no 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 no! just put on this mask and see now you're smiling Mm -hmm. now you're laughing doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what you're feeling on the inside yeah it's pleasant now and louisa has a line where she says oh now i see it's funny right which that's fucked up (laughs) (laughs) so all that to say like this this goes places and i think is is a really like deep exploration and manages to say a lot without actually saying anything and that's always a treat to see Mm -hmm. but what did you think about some of the performances 
Like, who's your favorite actor? Who's your favorite character to watch? I think Elgai was my favorite character to watch, but that's that's pretty expected. That's fair. And, I, <laughs> and like I said, the guy's charming. He gives David Bowie vibes. And so that's a guy named Jonathan Morris. And I was really fascinated to learn. This was like, he did one movie after this. And then his career just stopped. Interesting. Like, as far as I can tell, he didn't go to theater. He didn't become a director. Something happened in this dude's life where he was like, yeah, I'll be an actor for 15 years and then I won't be. Interesting. Okay. So, other than him, I think my favorite actor is... Bellamy. Which I, I sit here and nod and, and I think even including uh Elgayo, my favorite actor is Bellamy because it's Joel Gray. It's the great Joel Gray. The man was on the Muppet show. Oh okay. Broadway legend, guy who when Wicked first was announced, he got billing above Adina Menzel because he was the original um Oz. In Wicked. What? I didn't know that. Joel Joel Gray is a treasure and you like watch it in the movie, especially um, I was noticing it when he was uh, playing alongside the guy playing Huckleby doing the the minute we say no, like they're doing banter and they're doing pattern. They're doing really simple choreography. And like, I'm sure the other actor is professional and great and fine and like knows how to dance and stuff but next to joel gray anybody on stage just looks like it's their first day oh no and they're new and and they don't quite know what's going on yet and joel gray is just like tilting his hand in a in a certain way that just makes all the difference in the world and he's just this delightful little elven man who (laughs) even as his character is doing some stuff that is like shitty but in a comedic way i'm sitting here being like you know what you're joel gray like i don't forgive you but i could still root for you yeah it's really really sweet to watch and i think the reason he's so charming and that we forgive him so easily other than the fact that he's this amazing actor is that you can tell he's emotionally tied to his daughter like bellamy has a little bit more emotional depth than huckleby does yes and and i think that's a factor of of learning about him first and between the two he's clearly the stronger character how do you suppose he reacts when he finds out that his daughter lost his dead wife's necklace i think he's fine with it because in that same scene where they're welcoming the children back home they're just happy they're back that's true because again time wibbly wobbly in this musical when they see their kids they're like it's a miracle they're back you're like how long were they gone uh yeah yeah fair enough so i don't think he cares about a necklace he cares about his kid Right. And I think that's also the reason, like, you know, we've we've talked at length about how it's an objectively not okay thing that they do, mm-hmm. but their intentions are at least in a better place of like, we want the best for our kids. We think our kids are great. Our kids would be great together. And then we can hang out. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Your daughter brings a young man in, says, do you like him, Pa? 
just tell her he's a fool. And then you've got a son-in-law. Um, do you want to talk about how this movie didn't age well? Uh, other than the constant rape jokes and... Other than. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's fair, but I would argue that didn't play well in any time period. <laughs> um, we have a misnomer of a Aboriginal person. Yep. Uh, we have carnies being treated as less than people. Yep. Which, granted, you and I have been saying carnies. Carnival people, circus folk, circus workers. Yeah. Entertainers. Professional entertainment people. Yeah, shame yes. on us. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I do want to point out, this is wonderful. The musical actually used real circus troops. Yeah, I caught that at the very end credits. It was like the United Circus Actors Guild or something mm -hmm. like straight up all the non-named characters were people who worked in like circus performance anyway. That is really cool. Yeah. But how else didn't it age well? Well, the biggest thing I noticed is you've got uh, the person you said was the objectively best character. Mortimer. Mute Mortimer running around in full on Native American costume for no actual reason. Like, there does, there's not even a performance that night. He's just, like, being introduced and does the bit where he falls face down into a pool for two minutes and holds his breath. And the one thing I'm willing to say is, like, okay, if this is, like, 1920s, 1930s, you were absolutely going to have people dressing in those costumes. Mm -hmm. Is it the actual intention of the filmmakers to, oh, who gives a crap? Yeah, put him in a headdress. It looks cool. Or is he like, or, or were the filmmakers like, I mean, this is a carnival. There would be this person. Let's do that so that it's accurate for the period. I'm trying to figure out if this w didn't age well or if this was just a like, accurate representation either way i caught it either way it's 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 pretty painful to watch too but also it's teller yeah also it is teller of pen and teller which i did you ever wonder where's pen yes yeah <laughs> i was like why is this old crinkly dude the mortimer's person whereas we have this other human who is someone? Well, speaking of old crinkly dude, like, do you mean returning to cult fiction Bernard Hughes? Bernard Hughes. So I wouldn't have known this if I hadn't been looking at the IMDb anyway, but the old man who, like, s claims up and down that he's a real Shakespearean performer is Grandpa from The Lost Boys. The one who knew there were vampires the whole damn time. The one who knew there were vampires the whole damn time and didn't <laughs> say anything. So he's the worst in two movies. Yes. Because he's not great in this one. No, he is objectively unhelpful and drugs a kid. <laughs> okay, but does he drug a kid because he wants to drug a kid? Or does he drug a kid because Ogayo is like, you're going to drug this kid? I didn't get the scene where Ogayo told him to drug the kid. <laughs> like, I didn't see that part. I kind of got the feeling that El Gallo, like, runs the whole circus, yeah, though. Yeah, no, I, I, I get you. And, and El Gallo does do the thing where he's like, 
shining lights into Matt's window and transfixing him. So yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, the more I think about it, the more I see the Jareth vibes, like the come away with me. Yeah, absolutely. Like here, I can pull you into this world where I'm going to fuck with your life. Join the circus only lol. Not really. I don't need you. I got 250 bucks in 1920s money. I got this sweet necklace. I'm good. Like, my life is where where I want it to be. <laughs> Which, okay, also, can we just talk about the finances real quick? Hmm, okay. So El Gallo, presumably, his whole thing is that he goes to town where there's a circus. There's already, he's already going to do the circus thing. Yeah, he is the ringleader. He's already going to be there. And then he goes to all the mailboxes, or has somebody go to all the mailboxes, put in their little flyers. Yep. He just does this as a thing on the side for fun. So his whole heckling, getting more money, oh, well, it depends on how you pay the fee. Yeah. He was going to do this no matter what they paid. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, they could have said, all we got is 50 bucks, and he would have been like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Because I'm in this shithole of a town. Well, and he would have been like, what a coincidence. It's $49.95. The extra five (laughs) cents a tip. Because that's the thing. It's either in the box art or or the, like, Wikipedia description of the movie or something. But somewhere, El Gallo is referred to as a con man. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also part of why I was waiting for more of a turn. Because on the one hand, he doesn't do anything total con man-y. He doesn't, like, totally trick somebody out of their money. But at the same time... He absolutely lets these guys throw as much money as they can at him and is like, okay, well, it's five bucks for the chicken lady and it's another $3 for the cannon and it's $20 for this. Is, is all this okay? Yes, all this is okay. All right. You're right. He he was going to do this probably not for free, probably not just for the lulls. He's, he's even got that part where he's like, this isn't fun when it's free, when he's yeah. like kicking Matt's ass in the sword fight. Yeah. But he would have done this for less than $250. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, like, was he always only going to do the first half? Or when the parents, when Mortimer, or Mortimer, when Huckleby and Bellamy came to him and they were like, this is what we want, was he immediately like, yeah, okay, I'll do the first half. And then I'll immediately turn around and possibly maybe metaphor molest your daughter and fuck up your son that's a really good question because like thinking about it you know the context of the play the entire first act is the setup and the abduction and the you get the fight scene and all of that and i'm straight up sitting here like five minutes after that being like okay wait where's the conflict for the rest of this movie and you know we immediately get into the kids realizing that like, Oh, it's hard to be romantically invested with someone when there's like no stakes telling me I can't. And separately from that, El Gallo shines the light in Matt's room. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And separately from that, when Louisa, I think just goes outside shows up, yeah. and goes for a walk in the moonlight because that's a thing swoony 17 year olds do oh that's right he's just like in her tree i don't think it's her tree 
It's a tree like near the circus. Mm, okay. She's out. So Matt walks out and like goes and finds the circus and like is transfixed, supposedly. She goes out for a walk. She leaves her house the next night, the night after the sunrise night. Mm-hmm. And she goes for a walk and she's moony-eyed by the tree where she and Matt met the night prior. That's right. Okay. That's right. And he's hanging out in the tree and she's like moony-eyed and then she sees him and then they have their interaction and then we have Just Dance. But you know what we're forgetting? The the sword fight sequence, which is like the next morning after or whatever, mm-hmm. where it's very clear from how they are acting, Matt and Louisa, that like the romance failed. Yeah. And that's the, th- I think that's the moment where a guy was like, all right, see what else I can get away with. This kid needs a lesson. This guy needs to be brought down a peg and learn about the harsh realities of the world. And oh, she's very clearly transfixed by me kissing her hand and like utterly in love with me. Better nip that in the bud. So to answer your original question, I think he was content to take 250 bucks and play abductor. And then once it became clear that like that didn't work out, that's when he comes up with the schemes and the ideas to like, have a bigger part in these people's lives. Yeah. Cause she says, I just keep coming back to Louisa saying like, I think you're going to make everything wonderful. Right. Or I think you're wonderful. And he's like, yeah, no, I have to, I have to fix this. Cause if he doesn't, the next Carney ringleader, the next circus ringleader who comes into town and might be of a more irreparable moral character will steal this girl away and like get bored of her in three towns and then her life is kind of over. Okay, so there is one point I want to talk about. So when Matt and Louisa have their first kiss, mm-hmm. um, there is a moment where they're talking and Louisa says something to the effect of um, we'll live in love within our walls. And it's the first moment where Louisa, despite all of her talk of, I want to dance among the trees and the streams and the lake and big blue, clear skies is suddenly talking about like, no, I'll, I'll live in a house with you. I could see this. Mm. And I think that like that small seed is really important for the rest of the musical working. Cause if it was just, no, I only want fantasy. I only want fairy tales. Yeah. I don't think I would buy her coming back to Matt and being like, no, I think I've learned something. Right. Absolutely. This, this works at the end of everyone getting a happy ending. If they've actually come away with a life lesson Mm -hmm. to have learned. And that's Louisa's. And that line is what indicates it. This is really smartly written. Mm -hmm. Like I, 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 I don't know off the top of my head, what other musicals, like the people who wrote the fantastics wrote, but like, this is a much more highbrow, I think, um, musical just in terms of, like, what it manages to say mm-hmm. without saying it. Mm-hmm. But I know you're more familiar about this. Was there anything about, like, the history of the show or? So, like I said, it's um, a, 
based on a play that's based on Romeo and Juliet. Right. So the Romancers is the name of that play. And the Romancers, I think I wrote it down. The Romancers is by Edmund Rosent. And it's similar, much more French. Um, but the idea being that there are two children who live on the either end of a wall mm. and on each side of the wall are a boy and a girl and they fall in love. Okay. And it's very similar to that. But then this play also stole from Candide. It stole from Midsummer Night's Dream with the Pyramus and Thisbe wall sure, situation. Sure. Um, yeah. Looking it up, um, it, it came out on Broadway in the sixties, mm-hmm. like you said, and was written by a guy named Tom Jones, but not that Tom Jones. Not the. Uh, it's unusual. Not not the one. Not returning to cult fiction. Tom Jones <laughs> from Mars Attacks. Different Tom Jones. And just looking through it now, like the the guy clearly had like his own career and anything, but this was like his big project. For a while, it was the longest running show on Broadway. I did see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, Cats and Phantom. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Well, I think IMDb was like, yeah, it only played like 17,000 times in a row. (laughs) Oh, no big deal. No big deal. Only (laughs) 17,000. But I kind of buy that because like it winds up being a different kind of love story. Yeah. And you don't see that. This is a love story about the realities of love. Yeah. Which is really a treat, I think. I think that's why I liken it to Into the Woods so much. Mm, sure. Absolutely. Because there's a whole questioning of Into the, Into the Woods if... Specifically, I love the baker's wife in Into the Woods because she has this whole song about what is life, what is love, what is romance... What if you have a baby for warmth and a baker for bread and a prince for whatever? Right. And it has that unraveling of expectations and all of the princes have their princesses and then they realize, oh, I just liked capturing her. I liked yeah. the chase. Right. And you have this, okay, what what do we do with the after? And I really, really like that concept because I think in a lot of films, especially a lot of like fairy tale, um, Disney-esque movies where you see everything and then they kiss and then fade to black and you don't get to see what the fuck comes next. Right. And this, this is like distinctly not a fairy tale, but it plays in the fantasy yeah. of it all. Yeah. This might not lead anywhere. Do you know what the Fantastics I have is? Zero the, okay, clue. okay. I, I didn't know if I was the only one because there's. It's even referenced as like a line as part of one of the songs. It, Fantastics. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's Matt's last name. Okay. Because. Oh yeah. Because at one point, when the dads are before the minute that we say no, the dads are talking and they're like. Sons, daughters, in-laws, fantastics. Yeah, I buy that. And I was like, is that their last name? Because, like, it's the 20s. Louisa would take his last name, sure. Right. (laughs) Other rant aside. (laughs) Sure, of course. Maybe that's what they would be if they got married. They would be the fantastics. 
I buy that. I really do. I mean, with names like Huckleby and Bellamy, no one's name... Matt is the most normal name in the show. Matt is the most normal name in the show. Absolutely. (laughs) Bellamy, Huckleby, Louisa, Matt. Matt. And that's kind of like how their affectations all are, too. (laughs) (laughs) I I was really pleasantly surprised Uh, by this. You know, I told you we've been friends for a really long time. And like very early on in our friendship, you told me about this movie being like incredibly important to you. Mm -hmm. And I just never actually watched it, which I'm sorry. (laughs) No offense taken. Like. I rewatched this again with Alex and he's like, God, I hate this movie. <laughs> and I was like, I, I know. I know it's not for you. I, I did not hate it. I absolutely <laughs> did not hate it is what I'll say there. That makes me very happy. Um, and so, you know, normally we do a favorite quote. I feel like since this is a musical, it's only fair to ask if you had a favorite song. Oh, my favorite number is absolutely El Gallo and Matt's number. Oh, okay. The Long Hard Road. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What about you? Uh, El Gallo's finale, the mm. the December song. Mm-hmm. I feel like that ties the entire show together with such a nice, neat little bow. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really thought that was a really good song. Aw, yay. Yeah. I am forever confusing Try to Remember the Kind of September with Remember, Remember the 5th of November. Oh, sure. (laughs) Because, you know. Well, especially since it falls in the middle of the other two months. (laughs) Were you able to come up with a Kevin Bacon for this movie? It was hard mode. So it it was, um, but I actually do think I, I, I found something. Okay, lay it on me. So I was able to do this with two, and um, we we didn't really talk about them because none of the other circus performers have that much of a presence. Mm-hmm. But there was one guy who I in, rec, in, there was one guy who I instantly recognized as Tony Cox, <laughs> and he is an African American um, dwarf performer, mm-hmm. and he's been in a whole bunch of stuff. I guarantee anybody listening has seen him in something. One of the some things he's been in is he in is he was in Bad Santa with Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> uh-huh. Billy Bob Thornton was in Jane Mansfield's car with Kevin Bacon. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah. Well, I also I say I. Alex also got it in too. Okay. Because Joey McIntyre. Who is Matt? Was in the Heat with Sandra Bullock. Oh God, he's that okay? That's like a twenty-year mm-hmm. difference. I'd be interested to see what he looks like in that. Mm-hmm. But go on. And Sandra Bullock was in Lover Boy with Kevin Bacon. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. I'll take the tie. I, I'd be really mad if there's some Joel Gray Kevin Bacon musical that we don't know about. That. Oh my God! I want to see that <laughs> musical so bad. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> you know what else I want to see? What your Oscar? Oh, uh, (laughs) every episode on cult fiction, we usually uh, give a movie, usually give a movie an Oscar because every movie deserves at least a couple. Every movie deserves at least a couple of Oscars. I'll tell you, I've got one. Okay, help me out. The Oscar I would give the Fantastics is Most Meddling Fathers. Oh. 
Okay. Because, okay. I mean, these guys just go above and beyond. And it is such a, it is such a strange thing to just sit here and be like, we are the best of friends and we are going to presumably for like years and years and years, pretend we hate the shit out of each other because we're playing the long game and we want our kids to get hitched. Despite again, we are the only two houses for like miles. (laughs) Okay. I will say this movie has the best commercial for the U.S. Postal Service. You know it does. <laughs> because they get mail and they're like, the U.S. Postal Service, always solving your problems. And I almost expected them to look at the camera and be like, ah. And then there's like a, a title card that goes paid for by the USPS. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, there you go. Well, the other thing we do besides give every movie an Oscar on Cult Fiction is we then figure out what our next movie is through the application of a random number generator, which, you know, is basically us trusting the crypt. Mm-hmm. We have 291 films in the crypt, and we are going to find out what we watch next. It's going to be number 93. Okay, that's fun. Oh, shit. From musical to musical. (laughs) What is it? What is it? What is it? Uh, So we're going to be going uh, in the past a little bit. And next time on Cult Fiction, we're going to be watching the 1984 Prince musical Purple Rain. I have never actually watched this and I'm very excited. Well, this is so appropriate because like I know Alex loves Prince more than some of his extended family members. And so he just sat through the Fantastics with you. Mm -hmm. And now he gets to, like, make you watch Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. I'm (laughs) very excited. Okay. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us at Cult Fiction Cast on Twitter. You can also rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we change our names and derive some uh, fantastic looking symbols to then be referred by. <laughs> for the artist formerly known as Stephanie Johnson, I've formerly been known as Andy Bowell. Not uh, not too many movies have commercials in them, and I suppose that's a good thing. I don't know. I'm going to cut that. That was dumb. <laughs> You're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am the artist formerly known as Andy Bowell. For the artist formerly known as Stephanie Johnson, see you next time. <laughs> what the fuck was that? Because I said my name first, and that screwed me up. Okay, hold on.